I'm gonna copy hey, in the Mr. Blue guy. We're so pleased to be with you. Look around, see what you do. Everybody smiles at you. I don't remember the rest of that song. I don't even remember any any of that. I was just making that up because it sounded right. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, hit it, boy! Uh. <laughs> get together, have a few laughs. Oh, uh-oh, shit, lady, do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? Put the freaking gun down on the ground right now. Take your shot across the freaking street and say that until we come get you. Hello, and welcome to Where There's a Willis, There's a Way, a film podcast about the multitude of works by Bruce Willis. My name is Josh Carter. And I'm Kendrick Martin. Today, we will be covering Death Becomes Her, directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by Martin Donovan and David Cope. Coep? Cope. I'm going to go with Cope. For first-time listeners on this podcast, what we do here is an in-depth breakdown of a movie starring Bruce Willis, both from a film perspective and his individual contribution. We then add our movie to a global ranking. We talk trivia and then whisk the wheel of Willis. You can find our previous episodes at williswaypod.com and find other podcasts in the Last of the Action Heroes podcast network over at lastoftheactionheroes.com. Remember to rate and review us on iTunes for your review to be read on air. So before we go into details on this movie, um, Kendrick, what are your thoughts on Death Becomes Her? So I watched this movie a couple days ago, and Mm -hmm. at first I was gobsmacked. I had no idea what I just watched. And then I kind of thought about it for a couple of days and I was like, you know what? Actually, that was surprisingly enjoyable. And I feel like it was a movie kind of made for my uh, weird quirks and things that I like. All that to say, I think I'm going to give this movie a Bruce Will with one L out of Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that this is probably going to be our most divisive episode yet between you and I because I am probably going to give this movie a brew out of Bruce Willis. Wow. Yeah. All right. We're going to go head to head. Voice to voice. It's going to be pretty spicy. (laughs) Yeah. So if you want to get a hold of us, please send us an email at williswaypod at gmail.com or tweet at us at williswaypod. You can also find us on the Last of the Action Heroes podcast network Facebook page. And if you post a comment there, it will flow through the Facebook feed into my Facebook sync. And then I will scoop it out and read it. And we'll put it in a feed bag and then mail it over to me and I'll dry it out and also read it. And then we'll hook it up to the microbrew machine that I have, and then I'll make a little drink out of it. Wow. Facebook really needs to make, like, posts to uh, beer microbrew machines. Yeah. The fact that they haven't really says a lot about Mark Zuckerberg. Like, I, I feel like until he does that, we need to just be going full ham at Facebook. And then once they release an alcohol, it's just like, all right, you guys are good. 
Yeah. That's like their biggest problem, I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, destroying democracy, that's like a small fraction of compared to <laughs> on demand microbrew based comments. Yeah. Radicalizing grandparents is nothing compared to. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> we're going to um, play the audio for the trailer of Death Becomes Her and then uh, dive into the description. Don't you know? That it's worth every treasure on earth to be young at heart. Some people will go to any length to stay young forever. Is that someone? It's Madeline Ashton. Oh, she was a big star in the 60s. I thought she was dead. Oh, madam, you look younger every day. Thank you, Rose. But Madeline Ashton and her old friend, Helen Sharp. I've lost men to her before. Are about to go too far. A touch of magic. Drink that potion, and you'll never grow even one day older. Bottoms up. No warning. Now a warning? Siempre viva! Live forever! All right, so that audio was from the trailer of Death Becomes Her. I'm going to read the description from IMDb. When a novelist loses her man to a movie star and former friend, she winds up in a psychiatric hospital. Years later, she returns home to confront the now married couple, looking radiant. Her ex-husband's new wife wants to know her secret and discovers that she has been taking a mysterious drug which grants eternal life to the person who drinks it. The actress follows suit, but discovers that immortality has a price. And you can find this movie streaming on HBO, as of now, and for rent on VOD. And we will be spoiling this movie. So, Kendo. Yes, Josh. So, we've already uh, obviously teased out the fact that you and I have some crazy different opinions on this film. I mean, that's like, what, a five-letter difference between the two of us? right because you gave it a, a bruce will with one l was that mm-hmm. correct mm-hmm. yeah a bruce will with one l and i gave it just a a brew a brew so, a micro brew, brew yeah so just remind people listening who may not be aware the bruce willis rating system works by if we think a movie is worth watching uh it's get it gets at least a bruce so if but for Josh to rate it less than a Bruce, he thinks this movie is completely skippable, um, which doesn't make a lot of sense, I guess. I guess there's is there equal number of letters in a Bruce and a Willis? Uh, no, five and six. Okay, so but still close. Uh, yeah. So I, I think as long as we gave a movie a fifty percent, we say it's worth watching for people to watch. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so. With that being said, do I think this movie is worth watching? Yes. I'm very glad I watched this movie. Um, It is definitely of its time. There are several things I will talk about that made me go, what is going on here? But uh, I found the humor really worked for me. I thought both Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn playing off each other was very funny. The special effects, surprisingly, I thought looked really good, even for modern day. Yeah. yeah. Much less almost 30 years ago. And 
I know that um, the cast has since said that they didn't really enjoy the process of making this movie and that the over over amount of special effects made this movie kind of a a tedious uh, process to edit and rec- mm-hmm. film and that the story had several issues and they had to reshoot some stuff, which is most evident by the trailer. Uh, the, I didn't watch the trailer until we, until just now. And there are at least three shots in that trailer that are not in the movie at all. Um, mm-hmm. I know that the, the originally the movie had an alternate ending and they show scenes from that alternate ending in that trailer. But then there's also just uh, complete bits from the middle of the movie that were cut out that they showed in the trailer. Yep. Which I don't know why that felt like that was necessary. They show a lot of the great beats in the trailer. And so if you're going to reveal stuff, why not just show some of the other stuff and not, and not worry about the lack of uh, stuff that doesn't get carried over. Um, so Wait, yeah, that, so are you saying, are you saying that there should have been stuff in the trailer that, was only going to be in the movie is that yeah i'm saying like why did they why couldn't they just re-edit a trailer with the finished product i guess maybe they didn't want to have to re-edit an entire trailer based on the end but the the downside to our streaming only world that we live in and this is like a pre-covid problem it, it wasn't it didn't just come up in the last year but the fact that most movies are digital we don't have access to special features like we did when you own the the discs. So I can't go watch deleted scenes or alternate endings and stuff like that. Um, Yeah. So all that to say, those are the, some of the reasons I really enjoyed it. Uh, Tell me why you hated it so much. Yeah. So I guess maybe saying that I hated it is a little bit strong. Cause like I'm looking at my, or in theory, I should be looking at my letterbox list right now, which I'm definitely, opening up right now but in looking at like my letterboxd list i there's other movies that are on here that like i had less feelings about but i feel very strongly about certain certain movies um who framed roger rabbit by this same director robert zemeckis being one of them where it's like I can appreciate the artful, um, like, experience of this movie and what it was for the time and how it advanced special effects and stuff like that, and then also critique the rest of the movie around it, because I feel like, by and large, this movie doesn't do great with their characters. The plot is pretty all over the place. There's like a very campy first half and then a very mystical second half. And I like the first half a lot more and like interesting things that are in the movie get dropped randomly. Things that could be teased out longer, like are not. So like one of my big beefs is that the driving force of this movie for the first half is like the Goldie Hawn and um, Meryl Streep conflict that they have. And then it's resolved in, like, three lines in the middle of the movie. And then the movie's pace just really suffers after that point. And um, I I think that it's a big problem that Robert Zemeckis just tends to have. 
outside of the Back to the Future movies, this is like a Who Framed Roger Rabbit um, critique mostly, and then I haven't uh, seen all of Forrest Gump because I watched part of it, and then I think I fell asleep, and I haven't seen Castaway yet, so I don't know. I don't think that movie is an overly CGI movie or an overly special effects movie, but his other movies like Beowulf and Polar Express and the Jim Carrey Christmas um, Carol, they all are like... Um, technically pretty amazing movies for different reasons, but they have a lot of problems in the story department. And I don't really like giving movies a pass if they have some pretty incredible elements, if they failed at like making me care about the characters. And this movie failed to make me care about the characters Mm. and have good thorough lines through or good through lines throughout the entirety of this movie, which might just be like a me problem that I had with it. But that's just that's just how I felt watching it. Yeah, so I'm gonna res- yeah, so I'll respond to a couple of those points you you made. I agree mm-hmm. that once um, Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn's characters kind of resolve their conflict, uh, the rest of the movie uh, starts to go really quickly, and I feel like that was the point where I was kind of like checking the time left because I was thinking that this. The plots kind of they that was their major resolution, and they still have yeah. a good bit of movie left to go. Like, where are we going to go from here? Um, that was like the main thrust of the plot up to that point. Correct, and I think the pacing uh, was a little awkward in that the beginning we had a long time. A lot of the movie passes before we even meet the mystical potion seller, uh, um, and her and that potion. Um, elements mm-hmm. who were played by Isabel Rossellini, Isabella Rossellini, excuse me, uh, who's a daughter of Ingrid Bergman, actually. Um, if you look at pictures of them side by side, you can totally see it. But, um, and Robert Zemeckis, I can, I agree that he feels like, um, a journeyman director, I guess you could say, where he can take a well-produced or like a well-packaged movie and go and direct a solid movie. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel this way kind of about Ron Howard also, where he can make a movie out of all, like if he's given all great pieces, but he is not a director that has a style and you can't, if you're given a movie with no information, I couldn't tell you like, oh, this is a Robert Zemeckis movie. Um, mm-hmm. I think because he doesn't have a specific style. He just is like very by the book. And Meryl Streep actually had a quote about working on this movie that she didn't especially enjoy. Not only the over spe- overly intense special effects, she, she likened it to being at the dentist where you're just kind of doing painful movements and reshoots and... Uh, retakes to get the special effects right but also Robert Zemeckis wasn't enjoyable to work with because uh, she described he was not a actor's director Um, Mm -hmm. which I think really shows in this movie yes Um, I think that's true for a lot of his movies where um, they rely heavily on uh, a script and a, um, a cast that really connects with the script and then not where they don't need a lot of input from the director on the direction to take the character from. 
Yeah, because like Michael J. Fox, he just instantly understood what Marty McFly was and was able to make that character interesting. And same thing with uh, Christopher Lloyd. Yes. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I still thought, uh, even with all that said, I was purely delighted over and over again by the ridiculous, out of the blue elements, things I had never seen in a movie before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought Bruce Willis' performance was, you know, he's playing it at a 15. Everybody else was at an 11. He was at a 15. And uh-huh. <laughs> everything just had me continually mouth agape the whole time. And I thought it was very enjoyable. Yeah. I'm not saying, like, the experience of watching it was bad. So maybe maybe if it's, like, a, a recommendation, it might be uncharacteristic to rank it a a brew. Maybe, maybe it should be ranked higher than that. But... I as like a movie if you're just watching it to be like all right I just want to get like the really good Bruce Willis stuff mm. that's kind of what I'm thinking about when I rate it below a Bruce mm-hmm. like if somebody's like what are like the the essential Willis watchings I don't think I would ever list this movie it is but. very different than a lot of his other performances especially I can't think of anything we've seen so far I'm looking through the list of what we've covered and maybe blind date nothing has him playing like a completely uh i don't know if i would call him cowardly in this movie but but like uh, a loser right yeah he's uh well to be fair at the beginning of the movie he's a very well-known plastic surgeon and you know they show him in in a surgery and uh, Meryl Streep just waltzes into him while he's covered in blood being like whoa (laughs) what's going on here um uh that was all very silly but um even even in even in the comedies or the movie where he's the non-action movies i'm thinking of like hudson hawk um you know sunset he's never playing someone who's just so like we never see a scared bruce willis or like someone who's running around just so uh yelling and frightened and screaming and Mm -hmm. Um, so this movie really stands out in that in that way, um, but very little action uh, on Bruce Willis's part, and other than him playing kind of a silly character, uh, it's it's not a standard Bruce Willis performance. But if you're looking oh, for no, something for campy, sure. um, this movie is full in the camp. Uh, fully in the camp. I want to talk about a. Um, so we're going to spend some time talking about the special effects and what went into the special effects. But before we do that, I want to talk about the not special effects. I thought that the, so this movie uh, takes place over several decades and Mm -hmm. the way that happens is it'll just show you a scene and then it'll, you'll see a title card seven years later or seven. And then that happens several times. And the reason this is done is in order to give, in order to um, allow Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep to take a potion of youth and look suddenly younger, one of the easiest ways to do that is to have them look old via makeup, and then they take this potion, and then they just take their makeup off, and then they're 
you know, their normal aged self or maybe a little bit of young, younger effect makeup. Um, Bruce Willis also has to wear the old age makeup as he gets older. And I thought that looked really bad. It was very distracting. Uh And I'm not sure if it was because we're watching a high resolution version of a movie that maybe was never intended to be shown this high resolution or Mm -hmm. if it just looked that bad in the nineties, but most of the movie, uh, the bulk of the middle part of the movie takes place, uh, 14, 20 years, some amount of time after the beginning of the movie, 14 years. Yeah. And he doesn't take the young, young life potion. So he has to wear the old makeup the whole time. And it's like white and it makes his chin look very awkward. And I, I was like extremely distracted by his bad makeup look. <laughs> yeah, I like didn't even recognize him when the movie first started, <laughs> and he's got like that big wig on. Oh yeah, then, the, yeah, the beginning <laughs> of the movie, which is in the seventies, he has such a bad wig. Oh my yeah. gosh, and his mustache. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I will say that like the in in camera effects, all of the uh, like prosthetics and makeup and stuff like that, I tended to like less than the special effects of the movie. Um, yeah, totally agree. And I thought that uh, yeah, that old age makeup was just extremely distracting. Once. Um, yeah, I was kind of like, I was like, man, just give him that potion so he can look young and take that makeup off, please. <laughs> no such luck. No. Yeah, I uh, the, when I first started watching the movie, I was very surprised by Bruce Willis being that character, and I was just going like, why did they cast him in this? This makes no sense. He's just like playing so against type with what we're used to from Willis. Cause even in like his comedic roles, he tends to be pretty suave mm-hmm. and this character is just totally lacking in any sort of suave, suavity, suave, suavity. Whatever that is. Yeah. I like suavity. Yeah, suavity. Suavity. Um, but then he has this amazing Willis freak out moment in the middle of the film. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's why they casted him. They yeah, almost guaranteed, yeah. just like Adam read yeah. this scene, and then he gave a great great performance, and then they took it. And I feel like when the character gets more exasperated, Bruce Willis tends to do better. So the half of the movie that I liked less, the second half, he is just doing great. I just did not like him as lame Bruce Willis at the, the like, about a fifth of the way into halfway the halfway point. I did not care for that as much, but once he starts like losing his mind, I was like, yeah, this is, this is some good stuff. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Uh, yeah, a lot. The thrust of this movie, um, is Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn kind of fighting over Bruce Willis in the beginning of the movie. Goldie Hawn is engaged. And then we, you know, fast forward through, uh, him suddenly falling in love with Meryl Streep, getting married, and then Goldie Hawn completely spiraling out of control, uh, getting 
they have her character wear a fat suit and have a million cats, and then she goes to <laughs> a uh, mental hospital where the psychiatrist or or doctor, whatever whatever person she's talking to there, convinces her to uh, <laughs> try to keep it up, but. Um, Throughout this whole movie, I'm just like, what do these women see in him? Like, he's just a regular, <laughs> like, he's a doctor, but not, like, the greatest doctor, so he's not super wealthy. He's not made out to be, like, the most handsome man, so what is it they're obsessed with? But I think it's really just that the two women have a rivalry, and it's they want whatever the other one has. Yeah, yeah, that's what I got too. And I think that they made a point of that by making Bruce Willis so lame <laughs> in the parts where he's really being like fought over by these these two two women. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, and Meryl, that and then was when pretty great after Meryl Streep and Bruce Willis have been married for a while, they uh, hate each other and never yeah never spend any time together. Yeah, like Bruce Willis asks um, one of their like housemaids or whatever he's like is it awake yet yeah. which <laughs> is great also i love that they have like maids or whatever and you assume that there's like several people that are staff in the house and then they are never seeing the rest of the movie even <laughs> when it would be very important for them to be around so uh, maybe they have the weekend off i don't know <laughs> that's like that's what i'm talking about when i say that i have problems with this plot of the movie is that yeah. like you're like, what the fuck? Where did they go? They were there. Were several people there apparently, and now they're just gone. So, yeah. uh, well, Josh, when you're distracted by ridiculous death scenes, I just never, uh, never notice those <laughs> problems. But that's a fine. It was like what a- I was thinking about because, like, when she, I mean, spoiler alert, but when uh, Meryl Streep falls down the stairs for like the fifteen thirty seconds or whatever that <laughs> is, um, I was just like. Oh, and then a, one of their uh, like house people is going to come out and be like, "Oh my god!" But nope, they didn't do that. <laughs> so so let's sad. talk about that scene. Uh, that's <laughs> where the, the special effects scene in the movie <laughs> really take off. And Meryl Streep falls down this flight of stairs in the most unnatural but extremely <laughs> uncomfortable way, where she breaks a bunch of her bones and just completely crunches like all the all the parts of her and you see it happen as she falls down the stairs Mm -hmm. and i'm just like the whole time Mm -hmm. uh i thought that all looked great and then bruce willis goes to call goldie hahn and be like yo yo dog we did it we did the stair falling plan we had (laughs) and out of focus in the background uh meryl streep starts to like come back to life a la the ring and i was like oh no this is where the horror part of this movie comes into play uh i that i was sold when all that happened i mean i I liked that part too i i thought that that whole bit was great and then she walks in and then like her head's on backwards and the special effects look really really wonk for a little bit and then yeah, I feel like this movie was maybe a little bit overly ambitious with some special effects, and the head-on-backwards thing was something where I was like, ah, maybe not. <laughs> like, one of one of the things that Jurassic Park does really well is it really lives within its means. 
I think for the entirety of that movie. I watched it maybe a couple years ago, and I was like, wow, this movie really holds up well. Granted, they have a lot of animatronics, and you can't really animatronic people nearly as well and make it look realistic as you can with, like, a dinosaur that's a big, scaly beast. Um, But you do have to kind of live within your means, and if you can't make it look good with her head on backwards, I'm just like, why would you... (laughs) Why would you do this? Why would you write this in? I would, if it was me, I would like go. Well, maybe, maybe we can do this. So we're gonna shoot it this way, but we'll also shoot it one way where we don't have that happen. And then I would look at it and go, Yeah, we can do this one, or No, we really should do the backup one. And there was other special effects in this movie which were, worked really, really well for me. Like, there's one sequence where um, Goldie Hawn is, you can see through part of her body. And that whole segment just looked amazing. Like it looked almost like you could do it today. Obviously we have extra things that we can do today. Like we can program cameras to perform the exact same function. So you could get one that's just a, I can't remember what it's called, but where they just get like the plate of what it should look like. And then you have the camera do the same thing with the actor there. And then you can easily paint out the actor with the mm-hmm. other shot and line them up exactly. Mm-hmm. So you could do that nowadays. But back then, I am flabbergasted as to how they even did that. It was phenomenal, especially with her like spinning around and stuff like that. So there's some special effects that look great. And then other ones that I was not as crazy about. I do have to remember this is like almost 30 years ago. But yeah. The the head on backwards thing did not necessarily work for me. Um, <clears throat> the cover, the movie poster for this movie shows a like disfigured Meryl Streep and a Goldie Hawn uh, with a hole in her torso, and Bruce Willis is like holding a candelabra or some kind of candle through her torso. And at the time, I was like well, this just looks weird and who knows what this movie's going to be about. And then as the movie went along, I was like, oh, that's literally how they'll look in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's not a, yeah. it's not a, a metaphor. It's literally a hole in her stomach. Yep. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, this, this movie is just so, so campy. <laughs> so, uh, so bonkers it goes so many places that you wouldn't think it would go and then it 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 does it <laughs> yeah yeah um speaking of camp uh i was reading an article on vanity fair from a few years ago and i'll uh i'll try to put this link in the show notes about how um death becomes her had a a bad um release at it's time of release. It did not make very much money at the box office, but since then it has become kind of a, a queer icon. Mm-hmm. And this article goes into how, um, the two stars, Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn are, uh, both hyper feminine, but also extremely campy. And also they have, uh, they're, they have like a campy fight, and then they're able to make up all kind of on their own. They don't need Bruce Willis doesn't have to kind of step in and save them. Um, mm. And how uh, the queer community has really bonded with this movie in its release. Um, and specifically, uh, there are several drag queen uh, performances performers who uh, 
have taken this movie as their inspiration for some different outfits and things. I thought that was fascinating. Uh, definitely not something yeah. that I think this movie set out to do, but it's always interesting to see how the life of a movie evolves well beyond what um, what people uh, ever expect. Yeah. My favorite thing, I also read that article, by the way. My favorite thing in the article is that the writer, David Cope, um, basically was like, yeah, I have no idea how this became a queer phenomenon. I do not understand it at all. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, interesting stuff. I, uh... Yeah, the, the like, reception of this movie is very interesting to me. I really want to know what the word is for the opposite of a fan favorite, where, like, a movie is... Like, a Last Jedi sort of situation, where, like, a lot of noisy fans are very much not a fan of the movie. And then there's the critics, which are pretty much unanimous in liking it. I want to know what that's called, because this is definitely a cult classic, where... It wasn't necessarily received amazingly at the time, but over time, more and more people have gotten on the, yeah, I actually like this movie train. And if you look anywhere at the reviews for this movie, you'll just see like a pretty decently high average. Not like everyone thinks it's a 10 out of 10 film, but it's pretty rare to see an average that's below like 6 out of 10. So whenever people can rate it on their own, but the critic response, I think, was like a 50, 58% or 56% on Rotten Tomatoes, which shows that 56% of the critics that watched it were like, ah, no, you can skip it. So it's it's very, very fascinating to me how the movie has been received in the long term. And I I think that maybe it's one where if I watched it again, I would like it more, but I just was not not really crazy about it when I watched it. And um, even though some of the humor worked for me, the overall story surrounding it didn't really. And it's, yeah, too many, like, really random loose dangling threads and stuff. Like, do you remember when they're, they're in the morgue in that one sequence and then, like, nuns glide past Bruce Willis and then are mm-hmm. never talked about again? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that... Uh, the nuns come from a deleted scene, which why don't we take a minute and talk about some of the deleted scenes. So the nuns, uh, which were very creepy as they glided past, um, there was a deleted scene where uh, they pull out a body and it's a priest and the nuns were there in the morgue to identify the priest. Mm-hmm. Um, which didn't really add anything to the movie and that was one of the deleted scenes that it made sense because... Uh, I think it was just there for kind of ambiance, um, which is fine. Um, but several other deleted scenes, um, which I, I, I wonder, I wonder if they're on YouTube, but, uh, there's in the trailer, there's a scene where Meryl Streep is frozen in a, in a freezer, uh, (laughs) in a freezer. And Bruce Willis is like thawing her out. Uh, I'm not sure what that is all about. Um, and then there's the ending. So they had an original ending that uh, involved Bruce Willis kind of hiding out in a bar and then getting tracked down. And uh, that ending was completely scrapped mm-hmm. for a different ending where um, Bruce Willis uh, dies 
a, a good 40 years after the bulk of this movie. And Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn show up to the funeral where they see uh, a priest kind of read uh, a eulogy over um, the funeral. And they, he talks about how what a great impact Bruce Willis's character Ernest had in the world and how he'll live forever via the changes he did. And then uh, the gals go on their way. I think the ending they chose was probably the ending I would prefer. I haven't been able to watch the the alternate ending, so hard to say. But um, what did mm-hmm. you think about the ending? Yeah, I thought that it worked for me. Um, I I don't really have any complaints about it at all. It was interesting that it also ended in this decade because that takes place in 2029 so <laughs> yeah we're only a few years away from that version of bruce willis passing away uh yeah so <clears throat> there have been a lot of stories about um eternal life and people working towards eternal life whether that whether that eternal life looks like um, this movie where your body can die and fall apart, but you're still just living on or eternal life in the, Mm -hmm. you're impervious to, to harm or you're, you'll heal or whatever. But I feel like an often uh, left out part of those stories is the perspective that Bruce Willis's character Ernest has in this movie of being like, I don't want to live forever. Uh, I don't want to spend eternity with you people. I want to like be able to have death to come forward. And um, yeah, I, he had like I a thought, very tuck everlasting sort of conclusion at the end of the yeah. movie. Yeah, I thought that was kind of a refreshing change from a lot of the immortal eternal life stories that we hear otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, and that, that whole like end sequence in the castle was pretty entertaining. Although I kept thinking the entire time I was like, is this castle just in LA? What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> like, I know. How that does nobody the, know about this? The creepiest home. <laughs> yeah. And like the other thing that's just bonkers about that is that like the, there's a joke that a bunch of famous people haven't actually died. They just like disappeared. So yeah, the one yeah. that you're thinking of is there and a bunch of others. Um, but the, <laughs> the like whole bit where there's all these famous people at this party at the end of the movie and you're just going like, how did they all come to this one place? Do they all walk through the forest to get there? Like, how are they avoid, like how do they get, a- <laughs> get away without other people seeing them? That makes no sense. Are they all just like airdropped in? And then how many of those people are actually like quote unquote dead and are just going along uh, with painted bodies? And how many of them are like actually uh, still, still alive? It, I, I was so surprised. And like, how long could you realistically go without having some sort of an accident happen to you and then dying no matter how good you're trying to take care of your body. It it brought up so many questions for me. And I'm not normally one that like picks apart um, comedies. I generally try to just let the comedy speak for itself. But there's so many moments of like plot and then not 
comedy to where I was given time to think through these different things. So I feel like if the movie wanted to do one over the other, it should have leaned a little bit heavier into the camp category and, and the comedy side of things rather than doing a bunch of different plot elements. Because then I was just thinking about all the inconsistencies and weirdness of it, which I don't think this movie wanted you to do and it doesn't <laughs> benefit from. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was... Definitely a very silly scene where, you know, Elvis Presley and a whole bunch of other people, uh, James James Dean and um, Jim Morrison. Yeah, Jim Morrison are are there. And it's just like brief kind of seconds go by Um, at the uh, when they first get the potion. uh, The gal Isabel Rossellini's character uses refers to someone who just says, I want to be alone. having taken her potion, which is apparently Greta Garbo, which I did not pick up. I had to look that up later. Uh, yeah, same. <laughs> but that that was uh, apparently a long-running bit. So she's obviously proof that you can um, somehow stay alive uh, eternally because she said she was, what, 90 or something like that? 75? Yeah. But she also just, like, lives in her creepy-ass castle with, like, her hair metal band boys <laughs> that... Yeah, walk around who, with don't her, so. don't wear shirts. Tom, Dick, and Harry, which they are yeah. actually named like I. What yeah. a great, what a great name. Yeah, so um, good, so good. And like, are her dogs also? Did you also have the same thought? Like, are her dogs also immortal? Uh, did not occur to me. No, because um, I was like, maybe they're so well trained because they're immortal, and then you could just keep training them forever. Um, but yeah, that was. That was weird. Also, shame on this movie for making Dobermans into the bad guys. Dobermans always get the short end of the stick, and they mm. are very nice dogs. Very sweet. Yeah, my wife so. had a similar under-her-breath comment about why do they always make the Dobermans the bad dogs. <laughs> uh, I don't know about. I don't know if you noticed this. Maybe it's just me, but the group of people I was watching this with also had the same thought. But what was the obsession with butts in this movie? <laughs> yeah, there's so many butts, and then there's like a, a very specific boob scene where yeah. Meryl well, Streep's boobs like both go up and together. And yeah, like, so, oh my so God. definitely when um, when uh, Meryl Streep takes the youth serum and she starts to like y- youthen. Yeah. <laughs> I almost said euthanized, <laughs> but I think that's a different thing. But I think um, that is a different thing, actually. Yeah, you're but right. yeah, when she starts to youngin, uh, they used a pneumatic bra to uh, push push her breasts together to create a more youthful look. But and then that that is one of the shots where where a butt is featured. But the rest of the movie, at just random times, is just long takes on people's butts. Not always attractive butts. Sometimes just like. Just a butts butt. for the sake of butts, and I was like, yeah. "What is the obsession with butts?" <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back through other Robert Zemeckis movies and see if maybe he just has an obsession with butts. I do not know. Then I found yeah. <laughs> in the trivia section of this movie on IMDb that Robert Zemeckis would often say, "Hold on to your butts" oh, during yeah. filming, and uh, screenwriter David. Cop David Coop used that line to then go write Jurassic Park for Samuel L. Jackson's character, 
which was like blowing my mind that that's where yeah. that came from. That's what I, I quote that line all the time. Whenever I'm yeah, anything is about to happen, I'm just like, hold on to your butts. One of my favorite lines. The fact that that just came from Robert Zemeckis just talking about butts in this movie was mind blowing. Yeah, I I also read that and I was like, what this this movie and Robert Zemeckis what. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah. Uh, man, yeah. Oh, oh, I had another trivia thing that I had read about um, the push-up boob sequence. Apparently, they tried to use that bra to to make everything come together, and it wasn't working right. So, actually, in the finished shot, it is Meryl Streep's dresser pushing up on her boobs from outside <laughs> of the shot <laughs> in order to make it look like that. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's it's very very silly. This movie is extremely ridiculous, and yet I found myself wanting more of the ridiculousness mm. and less of the like quote unquote boring elements. I I probably can call them boring. There's a lot of mo- this movie that's pretty slowly paced and mm-hmm. um. You're not is, wrong. Is boring and I, once once they get to like any sort of interesting thing, I I want them to stay on it longer. Like when uh, they go to that alternate timeline sequence where Goldie Hawn's like, "This is how we're gonna kill Meryl Streep," and they like <laughs> have this whole segment for how they're gonna do it, and they. <laughs> put Meryl Streep, they drug her, and then they put her in a car, and then put her foot on the gas, and then they're basically going to be like, oh, we saw a drunk driver, it looked like, and then get the police up there really quick. (laughs) And then they just, like, pour like, a ton of alcohol over her, of, like, hard liquor, and there's, like, 16 to 20 bottles in the bottom of this car to make her look like she had drank, like, literally twice her body weight in alcohol, which I don't even think is possible. You'd have to pee before you get to that point. So. <laughs> yeah, and it's then when so they're bonkers. like, they show the corner, and he just is like going through the remains, and it's just <laughs> fused vodka bottle to bone. Yeah, oh which also my. it's glass, so it would definitely not do that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and then as soon as her car goes off the edge in this imagination sequence, yeah. it just touches a bush and then immediately explodes. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yes, more of this. And then it gets back to like, oh, we're going to talk about stuff. And I'm like, no, get back to this ridiculousness. So I feel like I would have liked the movie a lot more if it was a lot more ridiculous and more campy and less plot-y and yeah so that was those those are some of my thoughts about it um so apparently early on in this movie's making they casted kevin klein in bruce willis's role and then kevin klein dropped out and that makes me sad because i feel like kevin klein really would have done super super great in that but i am glad that bruce willis got to do it eventually at the end i'm i think that that's pretty great i just found that very very fascinating and then apparently Jeff Bridges also auditioned for that role, but got turned down. So, yeah, that wow. was 
I think Kevin Klein would have been funny and maybe a better movie. I'm glad I probably wouldn't have ever watched it because yeah, yeah, I only watched this because we're doing up this podcast. Um, yeah, exactly. So I'm glad Bruce Willis did it. I I uh, think he would have done better than Jeff Bridges, though. I can't see Jeff Bridges playing the uh, this character in a way that I think would work, but I could be wrong. Yeah, especially because, like, Jeff Bridges, when you're watching, like, Tron, which is eight years earlier, he has, like, a nerdy Han Solo vibe, and... I, I don't know that I would buy him as like a total loser because even when he's a total loser in um, uh, whatever the movie is where he plays big the Lebowski. dude, yeah, the Big Lebowski, he's still like a really suave loser, um, and that's kind of his uh, his forte. So, yeah, I feel like he would have been an odd choice, but yeah. So that was one of the the trivia things that I wanted to talk about. But another trivia thing that I wanted to talk about was that. Bruce Willis had two other ideas for the title of this film. It wasn't always going to be Death Becomes Her. And the two titles that he came up with were My Man Death and It's Death, Baby. I and think I did read this. <laughs> I love It's Death, Baby. I think that that's phenomenal. Those are the silliest names. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I love that. I love that. It makes me happy. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to um, proceed on to the uh, Star Trek connection. And Kendrick, you wrote down a couple, and then I wrote down a couple. Do you want to go over your two first? Okay, so Star Trek connections in this movie. There's a couple that I found. Uh, the first one is William Frank Father. And both of these, um, both of these connections that I have are not major roles, and I had to kind of piece it together who they were in this movie because we don't have. Uh, there's not a lot of. Um, they're not obvious, but I believe this person, uh, this per- this plays Mister Franklin in Death Becomes Her. And I believe that was someone at the um, spa that Meryl Streep goes to and uh, where she originally, she does the, which we didn't even talk about, the, the, her, before she gets the serum, she goes to the spa every six months and apparently does like an oil change, but for bodies and has her fluids replaced or something and somehow like euthanizes herself young young and young and herself <laughs> um, was that a spock i thought that it was like some sort of plastic surgery place so i was i thought it was maybe a spa but i wasn't totally sure um um anyway the guy who's like running the place who does the weird winking thing i believe that's mr franklin who's played by oh, okay. william frankfather and William Frankfather also was in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He played one of the changelings um, Mm -hmm. in the two-part episode, The Search, Parts 1 and Part 2. Also, in this movie, we had Clement von Frankenstein? Franken? Frankenstein? (laughs) 
Uh huh. Yep. Yep. He played um, in this movie. He played a character named Opening Man, which again, not totally sure what that means. But my best guess is at the beginning of the movie during the Broadway play, there's several shots of people kind of awkwardly getting up out of the audience and going to leave because they hate the play. And mm-hmm. I, I take it that Opening Man is one of those people. Um, so Clement von Frankenstein uh, played a character named The Gentleman in a Star Trek Next Generation episode called Ship in a Bottle. Mm. I seem to remember liking that one, but I could just be recommending people watch a terrible episode by accident. Who knows? Mm. Mm. The plot or the name sounds familiar. Oh, it's the Professor Moriarty episode. Oh, I see. Yeah. Which, I mean, if you like holodeck episodes, then it's a good episode. But if you don't, then definitely don't watch it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we had those Star Trek connections. There were a few others, one of them being uh, Tom Boyd, I think, worked on <laughs> music <laughs> yep. for this movie. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, yeah, typical, typical Tom Boyd. <clears throat> Which if, uh, I guess if you're coming in now for the first time, we've referenced this man a few times, but he plays the oboe on every movie that has ever existed, basically. Um, if you need an oboe played, he's your guy. You just call him in and then he plays the oboe. And he's played on a lot of stuff, so a lot of Star Trek movies and a lot of the, uh, even the shows I think he's played on and in pretty much every movie. If you look up his IMDb, he has like, I think 1,400 titles or something like that. It's insane. But anyways, the other Star Trek connections were um, some ILM boys. So Industrial Light and Magic is a, um, like a special effects company. And they actually won an Academy Award for special effects in this movie. They beat out Alien 3 and Batman Returns. And so I wanted to mention these guys in particular. So the two people that won, that shared the Academy Award with two others who don't have any Star Trek connections, so they're, they're not going to get mentioned here. But the uh, two people who have Star Trek connections, names are Douglas Smith and he worked on Star Trek Generations, and then also Ken Ralston, who worked on the Star Trek OG trilogy, which is um, Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, and The Voyage Home. So they've, they've done special effects for other Star Trek-y things, as well as this movie, and then they actually won an Oscar for it. And I think that that is a pretty well-deserved Oscar. I haven't watched um, all of Batman Returns. That was another one where I fell asleep partway through it. And um, I haven't seen Alien 3 yet, but the special effects in this movie, as we've mentioned, are pretty great. And I believe, I'm not 100% sure, so if I'm wrong, email in, but I believe this is our first Bruce Willis movie that has won an Oscar. Granted, not for anything Bruce Willis did, but still uh, his first connection to an Academy Award. Yeah. Which we'll tease out later when Bruce Willis wins an Academy Award. Do you think uh, Bruce Willis is on track for the EGOT? Are you familiar with the EGOT? Uh, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar. 
Tony, Tony, the Tony. Tony. Um, no, because Bruce Willis. There's there's an article published a while ago about um Bruce Willis acting in some play, and apparently he had to have an earpiece in so that his lines could get read to him. I'm pretty sure that this was Bruce Willis that I was reading about. If I'm not, then obviously send in a correction. But I don't think that if he's having his lines read to him, he's necessarily on track to win a Tony. And so, therefore, he uh, could not win the EGOT. Mm. Bummer. It's too bad. Yeah. Yep, it is too bad. Also, I don't know if he would be able to win a Grammy, but that's neither here nor there. I don't, I don't know that he wants to put out an album. And if he did put out an album, if it would necessarily win. Hey, maybe they could do like a retroactive Grammy. Someone could be like, whoa, look at this album I dusted off. Let's yeah. give it a shot. Wow, this is the best thing ever. It should definitely win an award. <laughs> yeah, they invent a new Grammy called like the old Bruce Willis Award. <laughs> he wins it twice because he has two albums and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you just got to win it once for the old EGOT. For the yeah, EGOT I guess that's to true. I guess that's true. But yeah. The uh, the other thing that we wanted to talk about was the money for this movie. So this movie did make back its budget first off, but it barely made it back domestically. So the the budget for this movie was fifty five million dollars, and the uh, um, profits that it made back domestically I think were like fifty eight million, and then with the combined total of the international it made 149 so it netted about 94 million but as we've discussed before the studios in the US tended to just count the domestic and then everything else was like kind of a bonus i i can't remember why that is i think it has to do something with uh somehow with kind of what their benchmarks are and stuff like that so it wasn't deemed a success though obviously it made some amount of money um, and so the, the studio was definitely a little bit disappointed in it. And the critical response also added to that because as we've mentioned, also this movie did not get received amazingly by critics. So yeah, that's, that's some of the money stuff. Another interesting money thing was that apparently the, uh, people that wrote the movie, they originally envisioned that it was going to be just like a, three to four million dollar movie originally with like really Mm -hmm. b-grade level special effects no like big names in it or anything like that and then robert zemeckis got attached and then he was able to um or the producer whoever was able to convince bruce willis and meryl streep and um goldie hahn to all do it so the budget like quickly grew but it was originally going to be much more of a b-grade uh b b uh grade horror movie or whatever and i feel like that might have even worked better for the movie and like can you imagine how happy the studio would be if they made fifty-eight thousand or 58 million dollars on a like three million dollar budget they would just be over the moon so maybe that would have been the way to go but also who knows if they would have even made back that money without all those big names attached to it so i think meryl streep made this movie for me uh if i'm being honest i think her ridiculous campy evil maniacal uh fighting and all that stuff like is was probably one of my most enjoyable parts Uh, i thought that goldie hawn was really good and i would have liked this 
movie about the same if it was somebody that wasn't Meryl Streep, as long mm. as they still had Goldie Hawn in it. Um, and then same same is true of the reverse with um, Goldie Hawn if she wasn't in it and it was Meryl Streep was still in it and they just had somebody else. I feel like I probably would have liked it about the same because I feel like they both brought mm-hmm. an equally enjoyable energy to the game. But yeah. All right, let's spend a few minutes talking about Bruce Willis particularly. I've already mentioned I thought his makeup was very bad. Mm-hmm. And he looked quite atrocious. Mm-hmm. I thought uh, I loved him being obsessed with the art of an undertaker and mm-hmm. how skilled he is at painting dead bodies and what a ridiculous concept that is. And <laughs> there's there's a scene where he's at a bar and a gal comes and talks to him. And he explains like, oh, I just go to the hardware store and buy spray paint. It works great on dead bodies. And she's so (laughs) aghast at that concept. But he's just like, well, that's what you asked for it. (laughs) And then in the scene where he's putting Meryl Streep back together uh, with paints and glues and whatnot, uh, he's he's wearing like a kiss kiss the cook uh, apron. And he's just completely in the zone. Also, extremely overwhelmed with anxiety, trying to get her to look right. Uh, like I said earlier, he was he was playing full bore Max Bananas Bruce Willis. Yeah, I will absolutely concede that Bruce Willis was great in this movie. I wasn't sold at the beginning, but about the halfway point, I was definitely sold. Or maybe even. By the time that he sees Meryl Streep come back to life, I think I was sold on his performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's we've seen, just great. <laughs> we've seen, uh, I'm thinking of like Mortal Thoughts and to some extent Billy Bathgate, but we've seen that he can play a uh, background uh, character who is just kind of there for other people to talk about and disappears easily. And mm-hmm. doesn't have any character development or really any growth, and it doesn't get that chance to do his energetic, uh, kind of losing it, um, Bruce character Willis moments. Freak that, out moment. Yeah, his Willis freak out moments that we really like. And I, I thought this movie was headed in that direction where we would just see the two women after they die and become immortal, and uh, Bruce Willis just kind of gets lost. Um, but I'm glad that he that he played the role he did, and especially yeah. that final scene in the castle with the chase, and he has like a lot of great uh, moments, and that ridiculous fall for I don't know 17 stories through a window oh, yeah. and survives in a swimming pool. <laughs> oh man! I also thought that when he dropped the vial, the vial was somehow going to interact with the water and that was what was going to keep him or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, where'd the vial go? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Bruce Willis is great though. And if you're not sold on, if you're still like, oh, I think I might watch this movie and you start it and you're not sold on him at first, just give it a little bit of time. I think, I think you'll like him by the end. Wait till that first... Uh, 
fall down the steps scene uh, before you turn this movie off. That's all I'm asking. Yeah. Yep. This movie yeah. spends an enormous amount of time uh, of with people precariously perched on the tops of stairs. <laughs> yeah, a lot of time. Do you not spend a lot of time on the tops of stairs just leaning backwards? No, I I think that's uh, against the laws of gravity. Pretty sure it is, yeah. But I mean, gravity didn't come around giving them fines, so I guess. Yeah, good point. The gravity do what uh, do. inspectors. Josh, where would you rank this movie in our other thirteen films? Yeah, so I, as I've mentioned before, I wasn't super, super, super crazy about it, and even though I laughed at a bunch of parts of this movie, I think that the problems that I had outweighed the stuff that I really liked about it. So I'm actually going to rank this at my number 10, right below sunset and above blind date. All right. And I think I'm going to, uh, also put it in front of blind date at number five. Or number six, oh, yeah. excuse me. Oh, yeah, because you like Blind Date quite a bit more than I do. Or maybe that's not even it. It's just that <laughs> I've got Luke Who's Talking up <laughs> towards the top of my list. <laughs> uh, yeah, Josh has number five, Luke Who's Talking. I have Death Becomes Her at number six. Um, what's is funny it is, possible? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say it's um, funny that uh, I rated this movie on a Bruce Willis scale higher than the last boy scout. But I think I like the last boy scout better, which really goes to show that the Bruce Willis rating scale is internal only and cannot be used comparatively. No, it cannot. Absolutely not. And like a Josh Bruce, Wee is not a Kendrick Bruce, Wee, except for when it is and Hudson Hawk, but by and large, it is not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, another thing I was going to mention, and we're going to talk about this later, but we did skip over um, the player because Bruce Willis is just credited as Bruce Willis amongst a bunch of other actors who are also just credited as themselves. And I did end up watching it because it's also on HBO. And Bruce Willis has a cameo in it, but it is my favorite movie that I have seen with Bruce Willis in it so far. So now I have two separate letterbox lists, one that includes cameos and one that does not, but I put it above die hard in my, my actual list. Wow. I give it a, I give that a, a, I give it a Bruce Willie, (laughs) like, (laughs) (laughs) or a Bruce will, but with, with full L's. (laughs) So, Oh man. Yeah, there's yeah. a handful of movies where he plays small cameo bits that we'll probably get to as we go along that we won't um, spend a full episode talking about. Uh, but maybe I'll watch the player and we can do a little bonus recap discussion of it. Uh, yeah. I, I hope so, because I, I liked it a lot. And I will say, don't like look anything up about it beforehand. And the Willis cameo is a spoiler for the movie, so... Don't just try to Google Willis cameo the player. Just go watch it. It's on HBO um, or available for rent. So yeah, and I did watch this movie, and I watched the player, and then I watched Death Becomes Her back to back within like a five hour period of time. So 
I think that that might have also affected how much I liked oh. Dark Become Sir because I just adored the player. I thought it was great. So wow, <laughs> yeah, no, I Man. really screwed myself over on that one. Yeah, well, I'm gonna come back and be like, the player sucks, Josh. I want to yeah. rewatch Death Becomes Her a second time. <laughs> I interestingly enough that you mentioned second time because I have watched Hudson Hawk now for a second time. And I liked it just as much, if not more, the second time around. <laughs> so I I think that movie's great. I'm I'm surprised that it's not a highly regarded movie because it's mm-hmm. so so much fun. That's a movie that, in my opinion, leans into the camp enough. Like this movie did not for me. That movie did, and uh, take from that what you will. <laughs> All right, we have one thing left to do. It's time for the Wheel of Willis. And what do we say every single time we have the Wheel of Willis on the show? We always say, Whisk that wheel! I don't think I've mentioned this before, but the little spinner that I have, it starts spinning really slow, so we like just say that really loud and then it just goes like uh, <laughs> starts barely chucking around alright so today the question is was this movie a cosmic sin <laughs> uh, no I don't think so I also don't think it was a cosmic sin I think that there's a lot of stuff to be liked in this movie Cosmic Sin is um, very bad. Very bad. Cosmic Sin is not only a sin, it's just cosmically a sin. (laughs) It's a cosmic sin. If Cosmic Sin was not named Cosmic (laughs) Sin, I would still probably refer to it as a cosmic sin. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. Um, But yeah, this movie is not. It's it's not, not nearly that bad. On my letterbox list... um, death becomes her is two above cosmic sin but there should be like a 40 point difference between death mm-hmm. becomes her and cosmic mm-hmm. sin so yeah yeah it's hard uh just looking at our list not knowing the quality gaps in some of these but yeah <laughs> yeah that's why uh letterbox should really allow you to do a tier list as well Mm -hmm. maybe i'll put that out at some point like a tier list of all the bruce willis movies maybe when we get to like 25 or something we could do that um just so that we can uh, Mm. have more things to argue about you know (laughs) yeah yeah what the 25 point is probably where we could do a separate top 10 and then a all time yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. I'll have three letterbox lists at that point oh. for Bruce Willis. I'll have my top ten list. I'll have my a cameo list, and I'll have my not cameo. <laughs> Perfect. That's just what I want. Uh, if you listener are interested in sending us suggestions for the Wheel of Willis, you can email them to williswaypod at gmail dot com. Or tweet them at us at WillisWayPod. You can find me on Twitter at Joshing Carter. 
And you can find me on Twitter at K Martinix. That's K M A R T I N I X. Next time, we will be covering the movie Striking Distance, which I incorrectly thought was about a submarine, but is not. I incorrectly thought that it was about baseball, but it is also not. Mm. Yeah, or maybe a snake. Like how long a snake takes to strike. Uh, yeah, it could be. I mean, if there is a snake, a submarine, or a baseball reference in this movie, I'll just go pause it and take a shot and then come back to the movie. So I'm really hoping that there's not like an extended sequence where they talk about snakes, baseball, and submarines, but we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Also, uh, you could probably just not pause it if that's the case and just keep it going while you take that shot. Yeah. (laughs) That's a new where there's a will starts a way drinking game that we probably won't recommend. <laughs> Snake subs in baseball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, get ready for uh, the play. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. that's my only heads up about oh, that movie. Okay. <laughs> Alright. Thank you All right, for listening. Cool. Yeah. Yep, we always appreciate it. Um, feel free to send us an email or tweet us at us at any time. We uh, always love it when people reach out, but thank you as always for listening. We always appreciate it.